As a Korean-American adoptee raised in Oregon by white parents, Nicole Chung spent most of her young life not knowing anything about her biological family. After she became pregnant with her first child, she began to search for her family. That journey is what led to her acclaimed debut memoir in 2018 titled All You Can Ever Know. In that book, she discusses the challenges she faced growing up as an adoptee in rural America. And now, in her latest memoir, A Living Remedy, Chung recounts more about life with her parents, enduring dire straits financially and in terms of their health problems, and underscores the challenges of health care access and equity that persist in the United States. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. On this episode, I talk to Nicole Chung about her memoir, A Living Remedy. This is a book about many things, but very central to it, I think, are the illnesses of your parents over many years. Can you tell us just a little bit about your mother and father and the things that they were dealing with when you were growing up? Sure. I mean, I'll start, if it's okay, with just their lives um, before they got sick, partly because it was very important to me in this book, you know, to not just highlight struggles or, or show them when their health was declining, but try to to capture who they really were as people as I knew them, you know, as parents before they started to to struggle. So uh, they were both from the Cleveland, Ohio area, and they were both uh, on the my father was eldest of five, my mother second eldest, and they were the only people in their family really to strike out west. <laughs> so they um they married quite young and lived in Alaska and Washington State, which is where they adopted me. Uh, after I was born to Korean immigrant birth parents. And then um, they moved to Southern Oregon and I lived most of my my life there. You know, it's hard to talk about their health struggles without also talking about the financial precarity that our family experienced when I was young. Like a lot of children, I think I wasn't really aware of either my parents' medical situation or like the family finances until I was older, like in high school. But I think when I was younger, my mother would have said we basically got by, you know, sometimes it was paycheck to paycheck, they got by and it was it was in those years, like when I was in grade school, that they didn't really have a lot of significant medical problems. That started to change when I was a freshman in high school, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, My father had already been diagnosed with diabetes, although he was not yet experiencing, um, you know, major, major complications. Um, But crucially, we often had no health insurance. And so a year and a half after my mother had breast cancer, she was experiencing other health problems, had to have an emergency surgery that was not covered because we had no health coverage. Um, My father was experiencing more and more complications from diabetes as as he got older and, and those medications and that just ongoing care was expensive and hard for us to access as a family. And so you know, part part of what I wanted to explore in this book was was my grief, but it was impossible to really write about my grief over losing my father so young. You know, he died at, at the age of 67. And there was really no writing about that without also talking about how his illness was worsened and his decline was really sped by the fact that uh, healthcare was so difficult, sometimes impossible for him to access for many years. Well, I'm so glad that you answered the question by moving to these other concerns about your parents and not just, a you know, I was saying to somebody, 
our lives are not just the last terrible thing that happened to us. They had these very full lives. I mean, your book is really a node to them. I loved reading about your parents. They are they are much more than what ultimately took their lives. And I love this idea, and it's such an interesting part of your book, and that is their complexities. Your father, in his many jobs, I mean, he was so industrious and so clever. Your mother was so sensitive and so thoughtful. I mean, our parents are complex people, and we don't see this enough, I think, maybe in depictions that draw our parents or our grandparents as these sort of flat, uninteresting people. And I really considered the way that you drew them throughout this book, and even your grandmother, I have to say, <laughs> uh, who I loved reading about. So I'm glad you went there in, in answering that question, because I really lament this idea that occurs so often, which is that we can sort of boil down just a lifetime of experiences to only the really terrible things that might happen at the end of our lives when illness befalls us. But, you know, this the idea of, of diabetes for your dad, I will say that, I mean, diabetes is such a merciless disease. Mm -hmm. It's one that carries with it so many other tentacles of suffering, so many other terrible, terrible symptoms and conditions. But this great sort of medical crisis of our time, I think, yes, COVID, but I feel sometimes like diabetes is is a, a disease like that. It's a great sort of medical problem of, of our time currently for so many families. Your dad's mother also suffered with this disease, and it affected your family, your father, your family for so many years. I think I want to go back to talking about your dad a little bit and a lot of the things that he did sort of the story of your parents is really about some of the opportunities that maybe they missed. Their path was a different path. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that their, his industriousness and your mother's sensitivity, the things that she liked, you know, this, this trip to Greece that she'd wanted to take, they mm -hmm. were so, they were so complex, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more just about your dad. Sure. So, um, as you, as you already highlighted, my father, uh, he grew up in Cleveland, um, so he was born in 1950, and really the defining uh, moment of his childhood was probably when his mother got very sick, um, and in her case, she had like complications and 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 kidney disease, and um, I mean was was able to receive hemodialysis treatments at home uh, in their home for for several years. Um, it was. There, so kidney transplant was available, but it was not yet common and it was extremely risky. And so um, hemodialysis treatments were sort of like rising in use. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned this before, I don't I don't really like to uh, sort of boil people down to like the worst thing that happened to them. But I do think that was kind of the central trauma mm -hmm. of my father's life. And, um, you know, he the way he spoke about it and the way my mother spoke about it, actually, because... I mean, he had shared a lot with her. She remembered my grandmother being sick as well. And um, and my, my mother was really in many senses, the family storyteller, like long before I was. Mm -hmm. uh, and even after my father died, she 
she had all of these stories, some of them about his childhood and growing up with his mother ill that I had just not heard or or not heard in detail. Um, but there was a lot of pressure on my dad as the oldest, I think, um, to try to, you know, help his brothers and sisters to always be like quiet. Their home had to be like restful um, so their mother could rest. And yeah, it was I, I remember my mother telling me he his job was like cleaning the dialysis machine like he just hated it. When I think about my parents together, you know, because they met when they were quite young, you know, probably 19, 20 years old. They were married at 21 and 22. I really think of them as like, yes, strivers and creative people, curious people. I think of them as dreamers. I think there's a reason that they thought about, like they were the first in their families to really leave Ohio um, and and just want to see what else was out there. And I think that they were really just like excited to like begin that life together and to the missed opportunities that you mentioned, you know, it was another generation too. And for instance, like, I don't think, I don't think my father thought when he decided not to go to college that he, it would potentially make it much more difficult, you know, to provide for a future family or to be stable or to have things like health insurance and economic security. I think at the time, at the time they were really coming of age, getting married and like striking out on their own. I think they believed they would have many more options than they had in the end. I feel like you and your mom learned so much about having to navigate, well, so many different things, but also, I mean, not just living with somebody who's chronically ill, but also then these health systems, all of these things uh, in medical insurance and these kinds of things. And when your mother became ill, I, I feel like there were even more things for you to navigate. And then, of course, COVID emerges in all of our lives to add even more complications to to the situation for you. Can you talk a, a little bit about that, how, how this sort of unthinkable, unimaginable, unexpected thing uh, occurs and just just through such a wrench in in so many different aspects of that part of the journey that you experienced with your mom when she was so sick? My mother and I were still trying to figure out like what our relationship was going to be and and how you know how we would go on together and and individually without my dad. So um she got her terminal cancer diagnosis toward the end of 2019, um I guess the fall of 2019 and he had died in 2018. So we were both still reeling from that and I was still trying to to sort of figure out okay, what's my role? How do I support my mother as, you know, her only child? Um, how how are we going to kind of move forward together in that sense? Um, and then she gets sick and we we hadn't really figured that out. We were, it was, it always been the three of us, like her, me and dad. I just remember thinking how unfair it was that she was going through terminal cancer without him. I did not think of my father as a rock exactly, but he was her rock, you know, and they had been married for almost 45 years. And it just seemed so cruel to me that, you know, a year and a half after losing him, um, she was facing this. And there was a lot to navigate. Um, our focus for so many years had really been on my dad's health. I mean, I mentioned my mother had cancer and other health issues when I was in high school, but for years, she had been um, the more, in terms of medical, like the more medically stable parent. Um, and I mean, I write this in the book, but my father's death was a shock to me in terms of when it happened. But 
I knew by then he wasn't going to have this long life that, that we wanted for him, you know, given his health problems. My mother's, my mother's was the illness and the loss I really didn't see coming. And um, so, I mean, everything from like discussing the possibility of a will to advanced directives to whether she would stay in Oregon or come to live with me on the East Coast, you know, to what what her final arrangements might be. Like every single one of these conversations was a really fraught, emotional conversation for both of us. We're doing it without my dad. And my father had died so recently, like he didn't even have a headstone yet. I mean, that's how that's how close these things were happening. Um, and I remember like worrying at so many points that I wasn't going to be able to help my mother in the way I wanted, even before COVID. I, I was worried that, you know, she resented me meddling or, or didn't want me like worrying about all these things. But, um, but I just felt it was important if I could to try to help her. I thought it was, well, this is my chance to, to be there and support her and to make sure her wishes are followed, you know, whatever they may be, even though these were really wrenching discussions to be having. So it was a process. And there were some things that, that honestly didn't get squared away. And, you know, I was sort of left to pick up the pieces after, but, and I will say with my mother too, there were also, frankly, like there were financial things to work out as there always is when someone gets sick, especially in this country with our expensive and inaccessible healthcare system. But um, for instance, trying to figure out how she was going to get like the home health care she needed. That was something else that I was doing. And I, I was her financial power of attorney and trying to make sure her bills got paid. So her lights stayed on. I mean, there's so many like administrative tasks that you have to take care of, even as you're dealing with all of this sadness and shock and anticipatory grief. And it was important. It was like my, I thought of it as my responsibility, but it was still really hard. I think, you know, for both of us to face like what our relationship, how it had changed and what it had become. You know, I, my mother was such a fiercely independent person. And I think it was very hard for her to realize that because of her illness, she was losing some of that independence and she would need me, her child, who she still thought of as her child. Like she takes care of me. It's not the other way around. Uh, it was really, I think, difficult for her to like allow me to do these things because she wanted to do them for herself. I found so moving also the way that you try to shore up the the distance you have in, in chapters three and 27, these lists, one is in chapter three, you have the things that your mother sent to you when you moved away. And in chapter 20, chapter 27, you have the things that you sent to her. I found them. I found those, you know, this, these lists of quotidian, you know, sort of mundane mm -hmm. everyday things. And they really aren't very mundane. They're <laughs> ordinary, made extraordinary by, I think, just the act of, of listing them. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how, you know, there's a there's a lot about guilt that I think many adult children can understand when they don't live near their parents and they mm -hmm. don't see them every day and the mail becomes very important. And we start to consider all the time that we miss that maybe we could have spent together and we start second guessing the ways that we've, you know, chosen to spend this particular weekend when maybe we could have been over there and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that second guessing. But I, I feel like reading your book, um, you didn't have those choices with with COVID. With COVID. Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't hop on a plane. And, you know, you had young children. You have young children to take care of at home. And 
you couldn't hop on the plane either in in either case, either to go see your your mother who's very um, vulnerable or or your family. And this was early on in the pandemic when we didn't right. even know what to make of it, what was safe, how far could we push the envelope. It just seems to me like, you know, like you, I have had the experience of going to funerals virtually um, Sorry. through the funeral. Oh, thank you. Through the funeral homes live stream. I'm not sure people can really, who haven't gone through it, can really understand what that experience is like. So I have to tell you that reading what you wrote about your experience with that, I don't know quite how to say this. It, it was so it was so visceral. It, it's, it was so powerfully moving to read that, this idea of how you all dressed up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You weren't wearing your, you know, what you would normally wear during COVID time. Sweatpants. Yes. Sweatpants. <laughs> it's true. And everybody um, was sitting sort of squashed together on the couch. You know, it it was so powerfully moving to read that apropos of absolutely nothing i watched this jason isbell uh documentary last night where he said that he feels like covid turns everything into a sandwich that only has bread <laughs> and mm-hmm. in between and uh-huh. just deprives us all of so much and i thought i don't know you know all the rules are broken with covid all of this i mean i i almost feel like well thank god for the live stream then <laughs> you yeah. know so no, it's true. I mean, I remember just feeling so trapped. And I, my last trip to see my mother was supposed to be like, I don't know, I think March 13th. Um, it was the day the schools closed. It was the day, um, at least where I live, it was, it was the day we were officially asked to stay home. And I, I called her and I was just like, you know, hopefully this calms down and I can come out soon, you know, and I didn't really know what else to say. And she said, yeah, that's probably for the best. And then of course, like, we kind of waited and and things did not, did not calm down. Like to your point about live stream funerals, I think, I think actually many people, you know, I guess, particularly if they haven't experienced that have forgotten, it's just so, or like maybe just don't want to remember. And there are still many families who like they, they postpone memorials and they still haven't been able to have them. My grandmother actually passed away a month before my mother. Um, so like in early April, 2020 and we still haven't had a funeral for her um just at the timing of it like uh the phase of the the pandemic we were in you know my aunt and my mother weren't even allowed to be uh present at her burial they they were told they could watch from the car and go to her grave after and lay flowers and just the fact that that was how so many people were forced Mm -hmm. to bury loved ones and to grieve in that in that moment in time it's like so deeply painful. It's like a trauma that was experienced by so many. And I do think it's important to remember those experiences and like to not look away because now we're three years into to this and we're still living with so much individual and like collective grief. A lot of it sometimes feels unacknowledged. Um, so I, I was very consciously trying to not write like a pandemic book it's it's really only in a couple of chapters, but it again it has to be there because it's what robbed me of those you know those final visits with my mom. It, it's what ultimately kept us apart at the end, and it's it's also like representative I think of how so many people were forced to grieve in that in that phase of the pandemic. Well, I was happy to read about the joy that Buster 
<laughs> yes, all the bus- dog. <laughs> all the busters <laughs> and Peggy can can bring into such bleak times. Coming to to that section about Peggy in yeah. your book was such a well, it was pretty welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I wasn't sure she would Peggy is my dog for your listeners. And we got her during the pandemic. And I, I wasn't sure she would make an appearance in the book. You know, I love her, but it felt kind of self-indulgent. And then I actually realized that writing about her would be a, a kind of a good way into writing about my mom and our bond and also like my anxiety and and her anxiety and sort of the way that dogs were for her and are for me like a comfort. And I, I thought it was also a way to do that with some levity. But I just remember getting Peggy in like November 2020. And again, this is like pre-vaccine. This is the first year of the pandemic. We're heading into that long winter. It was really hard and felt more isolating than ever. Um, so no one's really thriving in my household or anywhere. And and we're all grieving because my mom had died and we were we're still at home. You know, we're still experiencing this grief alone. And the dog really kind of just crashed into our lives. <laughs> and I, I write this in the book, but I think for so long after both my parents died, it was I could watch someone else being happy, being joyful. But it, sometimes it felt like I was like looking at it through a glass. You know, like I, there was something about it I couldn't quite access or feel myself. And when we got the dog and I saw how, like just how happy my kids were, the change in them overnight was incredible. And for the first time I felt like witnessing their joy, like I could feel it. I could feel it myself. And it had been like so long since I felt it that acutely, but yes, also dogs are just amazing. We don't deserve them. They are (laughs) incredible comfort animals. And I mean, three years, two years later, Peggy is still really like the emotional, (laughs) the emotional heart, I guess, of our family. And I loved encountering uh, the poem of uh, by Marie Howe here. The title of your book is taken from her poem for three days. And you use these lines as your epigraph because even grief provides a living remedy. Yeah, so I love Marie Howe and I have been reading her poems for so many years. I probably first came across um, her poem, What the Living Do, which I quote in the book. And it, it's from her book of the same name. Um, I probably came across that like in my earlier mid twenties. And at that point I had not really experienced grief myself in a, in a deep personal way. Um, and it was meant, it would be many years before I would lose my parents, but you know, just the, that incredible poem and the final, final lines in kind of aimed at her brother who's passed. I am living. I remember you. I mean, I, I saved that poem to read over and over. And I was thinking about it a lot when I began to write about grief. I mean, I needed a title. It was the last thing really that we had set. And I was just reading books of poetry at this point, like looking for phrases. I think I also like dug out my Bible and like was looking for phrases, but none of that felt quite right because as I write in the book, um, I don't really share my parents like strong faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I read a ton of poetry and I came across a different poem by Marie Howe called For Three Days. And that line that you just read, a living remedy. And I just, I loved it so much. And I think what I, what I really wanted was a title that like Marie Howe's work, like her poems about grief and people she has loved and lost. Like I wanted a title that would gesture toward the living and, and what it means to live like during and after grief, after loss, because your whole life, you really have to reimagine it. Like you are a different person after that. 
I didn't really want a title about death. I did want a title that felt like it was looking forward a little bit, not not in the sense of like everything's fine now or pat solutions or, you know, I don't believe we really ever move past this grief. I think we learn to live with it, but the title just seemed perfect to me. So I actually wrote to Marie and I asked her for permission to use it. You know, it, I don't think it was subject to copyright, but I just wouldn't have wanted to use it without her. Okay. And she very graciously gave it. So um, I actually just recently sent her a copy of the book and um, she wrote a really kind note back. So I'm so grateful to her. Like her work has kept me company for, for decades now. And, and now I'm very conscious of what an honor it is that, um, that the title of this book is from one of her poems. And, you know, I say, I say to my friends or whoever, my daughter, you, you do survive somehow you do keep moving. You, you do think you'll never survive it, but somehow you do. And there are other things that pull you out of it. I mean, sometimes I wonder about the distance that the, the live streamed, you know, memorials and, um, rosaries and uh, funeral services. I, I, sometimes I wonder about the buffer, <laughs> the temporary buffer that they're providing for us. And then it's like a different kind of, it's a different brand of grieving too, it that is. almost, I don't know, forces us to, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it, but there's really something there for me about that, the experience of the thing that you imagine will just absolutely devastate you beyond living. And it doesn't. I mean, and the 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 sort of the first waves that 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 you describe too, the first wave is still the is still there forever, probably. I feel that way sometimes. You know, when I read the section, the excerpt um about receiving the ring that your mother had picked out for you. Yeah. On your birthday. I thought, you know, that's it. It's like it's the ring, but it's the lists, it's the ephemera, it's all it's the memories, it's the photographs, it's those things that you can pick up and sort of, you know, link arms with your husband and your children and just brace yourself on those things and move ahead. Yeah, I think that's true. Um I I don't know, it was so strange like in the immediate the immediate aftermath of my mother's death because I actually expected I mean, I was terrified of just living in the world without her. Like, I didn't know what I would do when she died. And yet I knew it was coming. You know, that's that's the thing about cancer is you do know that it's coming. I really expected it would feel it would feel like losing my dad again because um, we were only two years on from his death at that point. I remember feeling like this is it. It's going to pull me under. Like, I just won't be able to go on. I mean, I just remember feeling so surprised when that didn't happen. I was really devastated. I was heartbroken when my mom died. But I mean, I only really realized this actually when I began writing, but like, I had changed a lot in the two years since my father died. Like grief had changed me. Honestly, working with like a therapist, um, you know, through my grief had helped so much. But um, I write in the book, like I had learned how to grieve without self-punishment, you know, without so much self-blame which is not the same thing as having no regrets. I think having some regret is part of being human and having relationships within loving other humans. We we never do it all perfectly. And you can't because you can't see the future. And also something about how my mother loved me just so steadily and like without judgment, without expectation, even though I expected a lot of myself, you know, I think 
I write this in the book too, but like I was always just enough for her. And I felt so strongly after she died, like this great absence, but also like she, she wanted me to have this life and she knew it would be a life away from her at some point. And I just, I don't know. I just wanted, I want, I was in spite of everything really thankful for, for the life that I had in part because of her. And you don't really, this may sound a little trite, but it's true that you don't really lose the people that you love. I mean, their love made you who you are. As long as you are yourself in your body, in this life, you carry them with you because really their love is part of what made you who you are. It's the foundation. So I, I had this like very desolate moment when my mother was dying, where I told a cousin, oh, this feels like being like unadopted in a way. And it felt like this adoptive family I'd been in my whole life, you know, it had dissolved. It was gone. My father was gone. My grandmother who also helped raise me and now my mother. But I mean, I, I recognize that emotion, that feeling was true in the time, but of course, like it still matters that I had this family. What, what I am, I still am what I am because they raised me and loved me. And so I know I, I hold on to that because I don't even know if I find it comforting. It's just, I feel it's the truth. I feel it's like the rock solid truth of what it means to love and be loved in, in this life. You don't ever really lose that. Yeah, that's that's kind of like how I've figured out sort of how to keep going, you know, while recognizing, yes, my life has changed. I've changed a great deal. Like grief, grief kind of broke me down and forced me to rebuild myself. I do. I really do cherish this life. And I know it's the life my mother wanted me to have. Nicole Chung, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Yvette. It was my pleasure. Nicole Chung is the author of A Living Remedy. It's published by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.